Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, everyone. I am really excited today because I actually haven't told Kathy this yet, but it is my birthday. (gasps) Happy birthday! Thank you. So a very special birthday treat is to have Kathy Colby here to talk with all of us today. If any of you know me well, you know that Kathy has played a huge role in my life. Uh, Starting in, in sixth grade, I took something called the Colby Youth Assessment, and it truly has changed the course of my life and particularly my professional life because now I use her insights and assessments in almost all of my client engagements. So this is big for me. And every time I talk to Kathy, I walk away feeling more empowered. And I know all of you will feel the same. So let me give you a little bit more of a sense of Kathy's background. She is an acclaimed theorist, a best-selling author, and truly a pioneer in her field. She was the first to prove the existence of the conative mental faculty which causes us to act, react, and interact. Kathy believes that we are all equally perfect in our own way, and she spent over 40 years collecting and analyzing cognitive traits to ultimately help us be ourselves. And hey, that's what Mothers of Misfits is all about. So Kathy, thank you. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. We have so much to talk about. But first, I am guessing that many of the listeners have never heard of conation before. Can you explain to all of us what the conative part of the mind is and why it's so critically important to understand? Well, we've proven it is a physical part of the brain. It's in the very back regions of the brain in the most primitive part, probably one of the first parts of the brain developed. In a, in a baby's brain, and probably over the history of the brain, because it houses our instincts, those natural ways that we do things. It is what you turn to when you don't know what to do. It's what you do when you don't know that you did it. It's the pattern of your action. It's your modus operandi. So it is precognitive. In other words, you act before you think. That's the natural way of the brain. You're driven by desire to do something and you start doing it. And then you say, why am I doing this? What am I doing? We're different in our cognitive instincts, just as we differ in our personalities and the affective part of the brain and in how we learn. What is the only part of the human being that has proven to be equal? I have over a million people that I've studied. What I've found across the globe, the genders, the ages, the races, is that we're all equal. When people say, well, they hope, they think, perhaps we're equal. No, I can prove it. We are. We are equal. And we are born to be who we are. And that's where inequality starts, because some people get the freedom to be who they are after they're born. Some parents allow that, some educational programs do, some employers do. But for the most part, 
human beings suffer from not having that freedom. So they don't have an equally successful, positive life experience. They don't get to be as creative as they could be. I will guarantee every listener here has as much creativity as Michelangelo or Stephen Jobs or anybody else. You have it. And so do your kids. But nobody's told you that probably because they didn't know about carnation. Which is so sad because this is the key to truly unlocking fulfillment. I know a lot of people who are successful but are not fulfilled. And I believe wholeheartedly that until or unless we discover our cognitive strengths, we are kept from reaching that full potential. Seth Godin talks about to make seen that which can never be unseen again. And I really feel like that's what your work and your research does. It opens up for us a whole new understanding of a dimension of ourselves and our relationships and our world that was always there. We just couldn't see it. And then once it's obvious, it's everywhere and and it's incredible. And now we can actually harness this potential. And then as parents, we can help our kids do the same. Actually, on the topic of kids, let's talk about that because you spent a lot of your career working with kids and you've also done a significant amount of research with the school system. And you found that there's really a one size fits all approach in terms of how school teaches that really only resonates with 20% of kids. So 80% of kids by a little or a lot are working against their grain while they're in school. So can you talk more about your research on that particular topic? It's been a joy to work with kids and a terrible pain to see what they go through because of educational systems. 20% of kids, are naturally inclined to do things in each of the four modes I've identified as tying to these human instincts. The first action mode, as I call them, is fact finder, a natural sense of seeking information in great detail. If you have on a scale of one to 10, high numbers in fact finder. If you're like me, I'm a two on my own scale of fact finder, which means I'm a generalist. I don't do details. I'll give you the big picture. I'll give you the overview. It's absolutely pure hell for me to write a book because that's such a fact finder thing. And it's today books primarily written for adults are filled with facts. They're not filled with bottom line whimsy as much as I would prefer and need. The people who need a great deal of information populate classroom education in high school and university. So by the time your kids get to high school, if they are resistant backfinders, they've already been labeled as kids who don't stay focused, who aren't paying attention to detail, could have done better work, who aren't living up to their own potential, etc. I remember when a teacher told me one of my kids wasn't fulfilling his own potential, and I said to the teacher, well, He sure does at home and just stared at her. I mean, why was his teacher saying this? If it's true in school, then why don't you change the way you're teaching? 
those kids resistant get more and more stressed out. It starts in third grade when they have to put away the toys, mm-hmm. the play, and all the hands-on stuff. And it gets worse every year to the point where they get sick and try to stay home from school in high school. Mm-hmm. And they drop out of high school or college. And have a hard time finding jobs because they never were told you don't need to read a book and write a report to do well. The second mode is follow through. And that deals on the degree of order you need. Some people need disorder. They thrive without having a plan. They're really good at the last moment. Random is their thing. And then there are the kids who need a system, need total sense of order, need to plan ahead. The ones who need to plan ahead fit in very well in school. Their handwriting is neat. They put their name at the upper right-hand corner or left as required. Uh, They follow all of the procedures. Then those poor kids who are resistant are labeled ADD, ADHD. They don't sit still. They don't follow the rules. They're always out of sync. And they're called disabled when, in fact, they have been disabled by the system. It's child abuse. Mm. We label them as disabled. We say that, oh, they're ADHD, ADHD. We actually drug them to try to make them fit into the system. That too is child abuse. I've coached so many of those young people and their families, and I've seen the impact of that. I mean, thinking about these young people who that is the only way they know to operate because it's their instinctual way of doing it. And when something that is core to who you are and does not change is labeled as a disorder, that is so destructive to their sense of self, their confidence, and those kids start to disengage, they give up, you know, it's damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? They they can't win. And it breaks my heart every single time I come into contact with those kids. But at the same time, it brings me such pleasure to be a person that gets to tell them everything that's right and perfect about them. Right. One of the problems is people who don't understand phonation and only have the affective and cognitive right brain, left brain, which is proven wrong over and over, yet educators still go back to it. What happens is they say either the kid doesn't care, isn't trying, or there's something wrong cognitively. Those are the only two things they can see causing them to not do what the teacher says they need to do, which is sit still, read a book, and write a report. Well, the third category is quick start. And quick start is the instinct we all have, again, on a scale of one to ten, to take risks or deal with uncertainty. Some people are just fabulous at it and become entrepreneurs because of it or inventors and discoverers and people are out there being wonderfully weak. Then there are people in Quick Start who bring stability. If they're at the one, two, three levels, they are equal and that's still a strength. But the strength is to provide consistency, stability, make sure everything is thoroughly explained. Well, I have found that over 80% grade school teachers are in the low numbers in quick start. They provide constant follow-through insistence they have, and through quick start, I call it minimizing risk, 
those kids who are in the high numbers in quick start are considered problem kids so often because they will ask a question, they'll interrupt, they'll engage, they talk. These quick starts come in and interrupt the teacher. Why? Because they were trying to express themselves in a way that didn't fit in the stable classroom where everything is supposed to be quiet, except a quiet classroom kills the initiative of a quick start, just kills it. Then there's the fourth one, which is implementer, the fourth of the instincts that I've identified. The kids moving around, exploring with touch, looking around the room, looking at the shading, looking out the window, and the teacher saying, you're not paying attention. You know what? They pay more attention when they're allowed to do that. And when you tell them, stop doing that and just stare at me, eyeballs on me. As soon as you see a teacher do that, then that's child abuse for that implementer kid. You're saying, don't be you. I'm not letting you learn the way you learn. I'm not letting you get up and move around or bring in three-dimensional gizmos to play with to learn. The implementer learns through props and models and touching and feeling. And it's just horrible that our schools stop, oh, that's childish. It is not childish to be a sculptor. It is not childish to climb mountains. It's not childish to create safety, which is what the implementer kids, they're wonderful. They become our future safety experts and the people who provide the policemen, the firemen. It's just horrible what we do to our kids. And we do it to kids across these modes because we only have a very narrow procedural educational process. And if you don't fit into that little narrow fact finder follow through category, and that's only 20% of the kids that have that, as you say, uh, you're a misfit. You are saying so many things that are incredible that I want to unpack. And first, I want to tell you that my mom reminds me that when I was a kid, I thought I was being promoted because I would be moved to the front of the classroom. Thank goodness (laughs) I thought I was being promoted because you know everything about how I operate. You're the one that taught me that. I wasn't really getting promoted. It was kind of getting in trouble because I did all my work. I did all my learning. And then I chatted and distracted everybody else. So I got promoted, quote, quote, to the front seat. I know this young man, it's seared in my brain. I coached him years ago. He was eight at the time. But he remembered from kindergarten getting in trouble for writing his name in a green crayon instead of a pencil. Yeah. And that wounded him. Right. And I know that teacher wasn't trying to, to have that outcome, of course, but it just pains me what we're doing to our kids when we have this one size fits all approach. So let me play devil's advocate, though, with you for a minute, because there might be some saying, OK, if we let everybody be you, you be you, you be you. Isn't that a recipe for chaos in the classroom? Let me give you an example. When we get the ideal synergy, which means a combination of strengths across the board in the workplace, we get two to two and a half times the productivity. And we can prove that in the workplace because they have objective criteria. And if you have a company that is really good at evaluating performance so that you're looking at bottom line, how productive was this team? Just as people can tell. We know if we have everybody engaged in the same process, productivity goes way down. 
when we have differences in ways employees are allowed to do them and they have a job that gives them that freedom, productivity goes up as much as 250%. Our businesses have learned that. And I had to leave education and go to business to prove all of this because educators were not interested in anything they didn't already know. And by educators, I don't mean primary school teachers. I mean the people teaching teachers, particularly the people at universities who say they know everything about education, didn't know the word conation, didn't know that part of the brain. We had to prove it and do the brain research and show it to them. It's there, folks. Here are the brain synapses happening. But because they didn't know it and they would deny it, what happened is when I first started working with this, educators said, we're not interested in even talking about it because what you are asking for will create chaos and we can't handle that. Yet every single time we've done it, discipline problems went down to almost nothing. Teachers were saying it was a joy to teach the classroom. Kids were helping each other because they had the synergy of differences instead of everyone having to do it the same way. Think of a family vacation. What happens if you make everybody in the family do the same thing on a vacation? The kids fight with each other. If everybody gets an opportunity to say, can I do it my way? Well, yeah, okay, what we're gonna do is figure out everybody gets a time, we'll do it their way. That we know as parents and grandparents, it doesn't work to treat each kid the same way. But our so-called intelligent educators have not been intelligent about kids. So how do we as parents advocate for our misfits in school? Because I know from my own experience that I see the capabilities and the gifts and the talents in my kids, but man, it can really be hard to help others see, particularly when they don't fit the mold. What can we do to successfully create the environment that you're talking about from the parent side? Okay, parents, here's what I've done that didn't work and what I've done that did work. I did not find much success telling the teachers of my own kids, and I've got five kids and nine grandkids, and it hasn't changed much over the years. I have not told the teachers what you need to do with my kids. I've told the teachers what would help them deal with my kids. So you're going to find it easier to deal with David if you ask him what he's thinking about and what fact he'd like to know about. You'll find a whole lot easier to work with Karen if you ask her what's her plan for how she's going to do this assignment. For each one of them, I would say, here's how it's going to be easier for you to deal with this kid, not what you have to do to make this kid do better. And then I used to volunteer in the classroom, and I would mostly observe and then later say to the teacher, you know, I, I just wonder what would happen if, and of course I knew what was going to happen if, but I'd give them some tips. I've spent a lot of time helping kids know how to advocate for them. I love working with third grade boys who have been called bratty, naughty, arrogant, dumb, all the things they call third grade boys. Because third grade is when it all goes downhill for quick start implementers. And I talk with these kids about, here's what you're gonna have to do. You, you look the teacher right in the eye and you imagine she's leading a rock band. 
And you listen for her voice to go into that tone when they know that this is the crescendo for the song, it's about to end. And you listen to what she says right then. You haven't paid attention before that much because that's when she's going to give you the assignment or ask you a question. But you tune into the rhythm of her speech and you get to understand what makes the teacher tick. You see her as an interesting artist and performer. You can do the same with a kid who's interested in sports. Imagine your teacher is a coach and you're trying to play basketball. Tell your kids it's a game. Going to school is a game and you got to learn how to play the game. And you got to know each teacher and you got to know their moves and got to know how they do it. And then you've got to do it their way up to a certain point. Even when they ask a question and you can say, well, the answer I'd like to give you is this, but the one you want to hear is that without being rude, being respectful. Absolutely. But I think the main thing is to let the kids know what their strengths are and empower them to use it. That's why I spent my time creating assessments with information for the kids. And I stopped spending much time trying to train teachers. I've said many times that I would love to work myself out of a job with adults because I would love to help every single child learn as early on as possible what their cognitive strengths are so that they can advocate for themselves. And then we won't have this horrible job misfit situation. I mean, if we look at the state of the American workplace, Gallup has done great research on this. It's depressing. There are so many people that are in the wrong jobs, hate what they're doing. There are an incredible amount of college students that are spending tremendous amounts of money going into debt to study the wrong thing. And they're changing their majors two or three times. We have people, again, that have spent decades in a career that they never found fulfilling And all of that, I firmly believe, can be completely avoided if our kids know exactly what you're talking about. Because not only will they better advocate for their needs, but they'll respect it in others. When I became a mom, I knew I needed to know this information about my kids, and I wanted them to know this about themselves as early as possible. So you worked with me to assess both my kids, but my oldest, Mason, I think he was four at the time. You said, Emily, he's gifted. And that was our first introduction to that concept. And since we've had him officially tested and that's been confirmed. But what's been really interesting is he is cognitively gifted, but cognitively his strengths are not to be the classic academic. And that's a mashup that I've found has been really difficult for the educational system to digest. He's gifted, but he doesn't learn the way they're expecting. And you've done tremendous amounts of work in gifted education. Why is it that we think gifted students should learn a certain way? Gifted kids should learn their own way, as with any kid. All five of my kids were in gifted programs. No two of them are alike. Each one of them have different cognitive needs. Conation is how you use your time and your energy. And your wonderful son, Mason, looks like he is anything but an academically smart kid when you watch him, because he's all (laughs) over the place. And of course, I just loved watching him. Just adorably, wonderfully innovative kid. 
What you have to say to a teacher with a kid like this is, I've had the experience of having an expert tell me what his natural modus operandi, his MO is, and also that he's gifted. So I know that sometimes it's going to be difficult for you when he knows the answer before you give it to him. Now, I say something like that to put the teacher on notice. When your kid knows the answer before the teacher, that makes the teacher nervous and uncomfortable. And the older they get, the more they're penalized for that. Gifted kids are often treated as if they're a problem in the classroom because they think ahead of the lesson plan. So what I always say to the teacher is, I know that that's going to be annoying. And what I really hope you'll do is give him some interesting extra work to do so he won't bother you. Well, that's because the best thing for a gifted kid is to have an interesting extra assignment. But if you don't ask for it as a favor for your kids learning, which the system does no favors for the kid. And most gifted classrooms, and I've certainly worked with an abundance of those, are the way any classroom should be because they individualize for the kids. Gifted education, if it's good, is the education that should be available in a regular classroom to all kids. And if all kids were labeled gifted, our whole system would be better. My idea of gifted is not that they have to have a particular IQ. They have to have the ability to take on challenges. Don't ask them questions you know the answer to. Ask them questions that you're questioning. What, what do you think would happen if, or I wonder why that? You want to have a dialogue with a kid where you learn together. Mom was not good at certain kinds of things that had to do with directions. So they would create games I would lose, and I would love it. Because they figured out how to beat me. And I also knew how to beat them, and I would, to show them they weren't always going to win. You want to be very careful your kids don't become arrogant. And you make them arrogant by telling them how good they are at everything and by only giving them things to do where you know they'll succeed. You should always give your kids challenges that you know will be hard for them. You should have them try the things they're worst at because they learn to be humble and they learn compassion. We have too much arrogance in the world and parents do that. That is the one place parents really go wrong. Is creating arrogant kids. That's really wise advice, Kathy. And speaking of the world that we live in right now, these are truly unprecedented times. And we parents are having to make very big decisions that we've had no experience with, like should our kids go to school? Should we keep them home 100% of the time? Should we do something in between? And since you're an expert at setting our kids up for success, I'm really interested to get your thoughts on the upcoming school year. This is a wonderful time for kids because it's a time of discovery. It's a time of opportunity. It's a time of throwing all the rules out. I have been waiting for decades for the schools to implode so we could improve them. This is what we've needed. I'm 80 years old and I've been working on this since I was a little kid, so... For over 70 years, I've been trying to get rid of the circle in kindergarten. Can you imagine a greater setup for failure 
than taking a bunch of little kids, telling them to squeeze them together in a circle and then say, stop tickling each other, stop poking each other, stop touching each other. Lady, you told me to sit next to them. You told us <laughs> to sit in a circle. Your son has to touch. He has to feel. He has to move. So sit still next to someone. Don't touch them. Don't move. Just sit there and learn. That has been, to me, the epitome of stupidity mm-hmm. in the educational system. It starts at kindergarten with the circle. Well, now, thank you, pandemic. We can't have our kids sit in a little circle like that. I finally, after all these decades, got rid of the little circle. And if you use that as an example, the schools were so immersed and embedded in wrong-headed education. I went through the four modes. The kids of the parents we're talking to today will have at least two of those modes where they're misunderstood and their needs aren't met. Now, everything changes. This is the opportunity for the new educational world. We have to take very good care of this opportunity. We have to let our kids be heard. We have to let the change be positive. But this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. How do we do that in practical terms? Every single parent listening to this needs to know their kids' strength and needs to go in and say, how are we going to be meeting the strengths of these kids? And teacher, how can we help you use your strengths? What can we do to advocate for your freedom to teach the way you teach best? I'm hoping by parents watching their kids learn at home, online, they're discovering They have a way that they learn best. And some of these kids are upside down on the floor. They're eating a snack while they're learning. They've got music on the side. They're dancing. If you watch how your kid is learning while they're learning online, you'll get some clues for why school is or isn't working. And you'll get to know your kid better. And your kid gets to know how they learn better. And I think this is a precious time. And... For me, you know, the pandemic, as scary as it is, as awful as the sickness is, it has created an opportunity. We must take advantage of it. I really like how you frame it that way, because it's hard to see the opportunity in it at times. I want to ask for a little bit more clarification in what you're talking about, because like our family, many of us are having to make a decision. Should we go 100% virtual? Should we go in school? Should we do some hybrid Are you suggesting we choose virtual? What I'm suggesting is you choose the option or options that give your kid the greatest freedom to be who your kid is and to learn through their natural way. Some of my kids were in private school. Some of my kids were in public school. They didn't all go to the same school because their needs were different. And I think... Again, that's the same thing you would do if you're helping your kid find a job. It's not every one of them would be good at the same job. They're not going to be good in the same classroom. And, and what I've always said to a principal about what I would hope my kid would get for the teacher the next year is the teacher who would care enough to give them the greatest opportunity to learn in their own way. And for some of my kids, that has meant a fairly strict backbinder approach. For others, that has meant, can they be doodling and drawing 
all the time they're learning because there's some kids who learn best while they're doing it. And you need a teacher who loves the kind of student that your kid is, but more than anything else needs to teach your kid to be his or her own advocate. So if you're learning at home, you have to tell me as your parent what you need. You tell me what's working best. You tell me what you need. Would you do better if you were outside? I mean, why do we have to sit inside? Some parents are making their kids sit at desk at home. There's some kids who might gravitate to doing that. But I would say 60 to 70% of kids should not be sitting at a table watching the TV. It's so individualized. You've got to trust your own guts. You've got to trust your instinct. You know your kid better than anybody else. Absolutely. Yes. And what you're talking about reminds me of the importance of the result and not dictating how you or your child gets there because it's not about one particular right way. It's about their right way. And when we agree on what you're trying to accomplish, then give them that space to either do their computer work in bed or with the podcast playing on in the background, as long as they're getting to the result. Isn't that what we're here for? Let's keep in mind the word purpose. What Mm. is your purpose? Is your purpose that your kid gets good grades? Is your purpose that your kid be accepted at Harvard? Is your purpose that your kid have positive social interactions? Is it that they learn to deal with a teacher who might confront them in a negative way, just like a boss might? There's so many different purposes for a kid being at school or not. And I think the number one thing I would ask is what purposes, what does this child, not all my kids are the same, yours aren't either, with this child, what's the greatest purpose? And it's not always a need in a a sense of, oh, there's a deficit we need to fill. The purpose can be to keep them so positive and to keep them learning so constructively. One of my grandkids is so into music and loves music so much that he's become a music producer as an undergraduate in college. Another one of my grandkids got fascinated with light. We used to give him all kinds of light. Uh, I built a little stage out of a garage, and and I built a whole bunch of electrical lighting opportunities for him to play with because he was so interested in light. He has become a lighting expert. Now, he did not need to become a lighting expert to learn the same kind of things that the son who became a lawyer needed or the daughter who became a a therapist needed to learn. Kids aren't one size fits all. And I think the important thing is, what is your purpose with this child? I do that with the people I work with. What is the purpose with this member of my team? Hmm. It's not the same for everybody. And it works better Everybody who has a job knows that. Different people they work with have different purposes on the team. Same is true with kids in a classroom. If we had project-based classrooms, we would see the benefit of the synergy of differences. Kids should be working together, not learning independently. So I've just given you one of my primary purposes. I think kids should be learning together. Is that a group? you bring together in your home or a a group at school, I don't know. 
but whichever it is, don't have your kids learn in isolation. I think that's one of the benefits that I see emerging from this change up in the school year is that at least around our community, there's a lot of these homeschooling pods that are opening up and I'm calling them homeschooling pods, but they might be for students that are full-time homeschooled or ones that are doing that hybrid model. But for part or all of the time, they're meeting in these homes in groups of, I don't know, maybe four to six. And to me, that's closer to the model that you're talking about in that we're coming together, not necessarily the same stage or age of learning, but there's more of a collaborative approach. Is that getting closer to what you're talking about? It's getting closer. The way I see it going wrong is they still bring out the textbook and turn the pages. And who does a job with the textbook? Life is not about a textbook. It's not how we work. It's not how we are purposeful. And school is, first of all, there's a whole theory I have about the textbooks ruling education. If we could get rid of the textbooks, all of education would improve. If we were teaching how to work together to solve a problem in math or in science or to write something together or perform something together, we would then be teaching content and cooperation and integrating both the cognitive, the affective, and all three, the, the cognitive. Only through project-based education do we involve the total brain. And we do that mostly in summer camp. Very few regular schools do much with project education. And certainly not until high school. And where do we learn the most? Most people will say it was after school in the activity, sports mm-hmm. or theater or whatever it was. That's where we learned. That's where we learned leadership. That's where we learned cooperation. That's where we learned math. I think we should demanding project-based education. If we don't get it, do it at home. So is it at home or at school? It depends upon what's available. If schools go back to textbooks, keep your kids home but then don't pick up the textbook. And yet the schools through government requirements go back to read a book, write a report, take a test. That's not education, that's regimentation. And that's why we don't have creative problem solving. And look what's happening in this country with so many people not doing good creative problem solving. And They get more caught up in politics for their solution than in logic. Education should be about teaching much bigger things than are in most textbooks. I agree. That's what we need, creative problem solvers. And I get feedback every single day from organizations that say, I need more creative problem solvers. We have all of these employees that once they don't have clear instruction, they don't know what to do. You know, we've taught people through the school system that toe the line. Here's how you do it. Don't do it your own way, right? Don't be creative because that gets you in trouble. And now we're in workplaces where COVID-19 happened and the rule book just flew out the window and, and people are having to move jobs frequently or their jobs are changing a lot or we're entering industries technologies that didn't even exist six months before. And that's one of the biggest complaints I hear from the companies that I work with is 
how can we get them to be creative in the moment and solve problems for themselves without having that clear direction? And when you don't practice that muscle, it atrophies. And I see proof of that every single day. So at this point, if you're wondering, how do I learn this information about my child? I am so glad you asked that. And I invite you to go to mothersofmisfits.com and you can check out all the resources we have there. Specifically for kids ages 3 to 12, we have the Brainiac assessment. And for kids from 13 to 22, we have the student aptitude quiz. And of course, if you want to learn about your own instinctual strengths, you can do that too with the Colby Index. And not only do you get the uh, assessment and all of the insights that come with that, you get the opportunity to talk directly with me and I'll coach you through your results, what they mean in practical terms, and how you can use that information to thrive in school, work, and life. And of course, how we can take advantage of that insight to be the best parents for our kids. So be sure to go on to mothersofmisfits.com. And one other thing I want to mention, which is amazing, Kathy Colby has made an extremely generous offer that is exclusive to the Mothers of Misfits community. And that is for the first 20 people that sign up for the Brainiac assessment, you will receive a brief recorded interpretation from Kathy about your child's strengths. And that's just awesome. You'll always have that. You can go back to it. It's directly from Kathy. So again, the first 20 people that sign up for that Brainiac assessment get that special bonus. Thanks, Kathy, for being so generous with that. And make sure that you check those things out. I just cannot wait to connect with each of you on a one-on-one basis and talk about how incredibly wonderfully you and your child are wired. Kathy, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn tremendous amounts about myself, my kids, the world around me. Thanks for your generosity in sharing your wisdom and your encouragement with all of us today. You are a blessing in my life. It's been wonderful to watch you from the time you were a little kid. Thanks for being a part of the mission. Absolutely. All day, every day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.